We're going to start with a pop quiz. I know that's why you came to church. You wanted to be tested. Um, close your eyes. We're going to do like an imaginary. It's just one question. So pass or fail. Really tough. Some of you are still looking at me, Tiff. <laughs> oh, Lord. All right. You're in Africa in the jungle on a safari and you are on one of those nice Jeeps, and you come across what is considered the most deadly cat in the jungle in Africa. It, um, you know, it's the fastest, most strongest, deadliest feline in the jungle. You got it pictured in your mind, right? Everyone? You can't talk with your eyes closed. Okay. Open your eyes. On the count of three, everyone, I want you to say... The type of animal you just saw, this deadly feline that you've seen in the jungle. One, two, three. Lion! I heard lion. Raise your hand if you said lion. Wow. You're wrong. <laughs> what else did you say? Leopard? Who, who said leopard? Wrong. Cheetah? Cheetah? Who said tiger? Who said Bengal tiger? The answer is Bengal tiger. The guy with the slide at the back got it right. Yeah, I think he was cheating. That doesn't count. Yeah, look at this. Look at this slide. The Bengal tiger. This is, surprisingly, uh, not the cheetah. I would have never thought of that. The Bengal tiger is the most powerful, the deadliest, fastest cat in the wild. Most people don't know that. In 2000, oh my goodness, you are chatty today. <laughs> We're going to refuse communion to half of you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But we might. We might be good. Um, in 2011, there was a Turkish zoo that put a Bengal tiger on display next to a lion. And there was this uh, wall in between, but there was a small gap in the bars. And the, 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 ti the tiger was like on the edge. And the lion, thinking, hey, I'm king of the jungle, that's what Disney told me, is like creeping over to the zoo. And in front of people, this is nuts, you can look this up. Um, the Bengal tiger, with one swipe of the paw, hit the jugular of the lion and killed the lion in one swipe. That's how strong and deadly the force of the Bengal tiger is. That's why Bengal tigers are consider considered the most deadliest in the wild. But most of us probably thought, at least some of us thought, that lions, and lions are called the king of the jungle. Here's why we call it lions, and they are the king of the jungle. Um, the, the downfall with the Bengal tiger is that tigers are solitary, individualistic, territorial animals. They don't like to work with other tigers. And the reason why lions are the king of the jungle and at the top of the food chain is because they run in packs. They run in prides. I'm going to picture that, that. Good luck finding an image of two Bengal tigers like cuddling up together. It doesn't happen. If they do, one of them's not breathing. You can, <laughs> uh, but this is a common occurrence in the wild, is that lions, they love to work together, okay? And so we're going to, um, oh, oh, here's another story. This is great. Sorry, I almost got ahead of myself. This is the best story. Is um, 10 out of 10 times, if you take a Bengal tiger, one, and one lion, 10 out of 10 times they fight, guess who wins? The tiger wins. Oh. 10 out of 10 times, Bengal tiger will always win when it is faced one-on-one -on -one with a lion. However, if 
You take a pride of five lions and you take five Bengal tigers, 10 out of 10 times, the lions will win all the time. Because here's what they do. They prey on the fact that tigers don't work together and they're territorial. And so the pride of lions will single out one of the tigers, which is not hard to do, and then it'll be five on one, and they win. And then there's four. Then they single out number four. How hard? They win. So on and so forth. And it shows you the strength of what happens when lions dwell together and when lions run together, when they have their backs and when they work as a team. One of the mantras I tell my boys is I say, teamwork, and they yell back, makes the dream work. And we're like trying to teach them to work well with others and primarily work well with daddy. <laughs> and uh, teamwork makes the dream work. And lions get this. I thought that was fascinating that one-on-one Bengal tigers will win all the time. But if, if you change the game a little bit, five on five, all the time lions will win. So if you have a Bible, let's turn to Psalms 133, page 519, I think. Yep. Psalms 133, we'll get three verses here. And we're nearing the end of our Psalm study this fall. I'm sad, next week's the last week of Psalms. When we started the Psalms, it was like 100 degrees outside, and now it's like 50. And so it's been cold to, um, that's 50 for you older people. (laughs) Um, And um, this is, I think, Psalm number 10, we were picked 11 of the Psalms, and we picked three of the Psalms from this section, it's my favorite section from the Psalms, called the Psalms of Ascent, or the Psalms of Going Up. And this is the um, next to last Psalm from the Psalms of Ascent. They are Psalms 120 to 134. It's these, as we've said for many weeks, the Psalms that God's people would sing together as they were on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And so these are kind of like a a road trip playlist, so to speak, um, Psalms of Ascent. And um, I want you to, we, we put out this bookmark, um, and I know everybody except for Jake is right up to date. Um, so this is mostly for him, for everyone that you just, you know, eavesdrop. Um, but we did not plan this, but this is awesome, is, is this week, if you look on the back, we've got two weeks left. Um, it starts with the Psalms of Ascent. How awesome is that? 120. So um, I want to encourage you, if you haven't read through the Psalms with us this year, um, or if you're new, or if you started and you've fallen off the, ba- off the wagon, um, I want to encourage you, Jake, to join in this week <laughs> and start, and, and why, not, why not we all finish together with um, reading the last two weeks of Psalms, it's, but you could finish 30 Psalms. So wherever you're at, if you fall behind, just, just take, you have my permission, jump forward to November 18th, and let's start with the Psalms of Ascent, which would be perfect because, as I said, the Psalms of going up are like when you'd go on pilgrimage, and some of you are going to be making the pilgrimage back home for Thanksgiving, whatever. And this is perfect. These are Psalms for when you travel. So if you're traveling over the holidays, Psalms of Ascent would be a great place to be. And also, um, in two weeks from today, the season of Advent, the, the preparation for Christmas starts. And so it would also be good spiritually to prepare your heart as we kind of travel up to one of the high points of the Christian calendar. So I encourage you, I think the lowest minimum we could buy was 250 and so we have more than enough. If you already have one, take three, give them to your neighbor, we don't care. So let's read uh, Psalms 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. That's kind of the main point. 
Psalms 1, uh, verse 1, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters, God's kids, his children, dwell in unity. And we're going to see the last two similes of the Psalms of Ascent to describe just how good it is. Verse 2, it is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes, exclamation point. It is like the dew, second simile, it is like the dew of Hermon, Mount Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there, I love this line, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. So great. This is the word of the Lord. Um, it is intentional and fitting that the Psalms of Ascent, the Psalms of Going Up, would end right about as the pilgrims would be making their way into the pilgrimage of the holy city. There is never a time when the nation of Israel was most visibly united, the 12 tribes were never most visibly united except when they were all in the holy city, cramming in there for, for the feast, the festival, whichever one they were doing. And so it kind of makes sense that the end or the next to last psalm from the Psalms of Ascent would have this like cry for unity because now all the 12 tribes are together. And if you have any recollection of the Old Testament and people in general, you know, when people are different, they typically don't like to get along. And so it's very intentional that this, that this psalm for unity is, is in here. Let's look at verse 1. There's a couple of things um, that I want to call your attention to. Verse 1. First word, behold. Who uses that word anymore? Behold. <laughs> Here's what behold kind of means to me. I don't know if this is a legit definition, so take this with a grain of salt. But when I see behold, I think it's like this invitation to stop and stare. You know, kind of like, you know, if you're traveling on 35 this week, you're going to have a lot of times where you behold traffic accidents. There's a lot of people who are going to be rubbernecking and stopping and staring. I hate that. I don't do that. I'm not a rubbernecker. Someone else in my house might be, but I'm not a rubberneck. I'm like, let's keep going. Get in the right lane. Keep going. But, uh, but some people, when you see that, they, they, like, they, there's this action that's out of the ordinary, and it's, it's weird, and it's different, and, uh, and people just like stop and stare, and they're beholding. I think this is what the Psalms of Ascent are kind of calling this to, is, hey, there's this thing over here, and it's rare, and you should take note of it. You should pump the bricks. You should slow down. You should take it in. You should behold this thing that it is good and pleasant. Now, those two um, words will be subtly referenced to later, which is really cool. I've never, I didn't know kind of how the psalm ties to it, but I'll show you here in a second. And then brothers, how good, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers, and, and I would just say brothers and sisters, God's children, the Bible is full of records where brothers, quote, did not dwell in unity. And the descriptions in the aftermath is awful. I mean, just nine chapters into the Bible, you have two brothers not dwelling in unity. You have Cain killing Abel. Thirteen chapters in, the Genesis lot fought with Abraham. Genesis 37, Joseph's brothers did not like dwelling with the young favorite. And they sold him into slavery, tried to kill him. And even at the end of the, the Joseph story, they fought 
Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses in Numbers 12. David's children, King David, his children were divided and his household was filled with brothers who did not dwell in unity in 2 Samuel 13 through 18. Just in case we think that's an Old Testament thing, our Lord dealt with this. His disciples constantly fought about who would be the greatest. James and John, their mother, went up to Jesus. They put their mom up to this. They went up to Jesus and asked if, if he could reserve like two vice presidencies for her two boys. And it says right after that that all the disciples were indignant. Just a love, love that. That would have been fun. And then there's this great chapter in Acts after the Holy Spirit falls and the, and the early church is born. There's like thousands of people in the end of Acts 2, which is this great picture of what church life could be like. Many of you know Acts 2, they're all together and they had, people are selling stuff to take care of others and, and the awe is on them, the blessing of God and, and people are being saved every day. The Lord's adding to their number and there's this great picture in Acts 2. Um, after the Holy Spirit rests upon them and blesses them, there's just unity like crazy unity, doesn't last very long. In Acts 15, you have Paul and Barnabas getting in a fight over John Mark, and it says that there, was an, that there arose such a sharp, the word is in the Bible, sharp disagreement, that they, Paul and Barnabas say, I can't do ministry with you anymore, and they divide in two ministries or birth over this disagreement with, um, with John, John Mark. There's a reason why the Lord's Prayer begins with what word? None of you are Catholic. Our, <laughs> our Father. We often read over that when we're reading the Lord's Prayer. We, we jump to all these other things. But the first word, not my Father, not the Father. It's our Father. This is what the Lord wants his disciples to pray. Our Father, right? It is that following Christ is about being a family together. Our Father, like we're a family. This is why we will die on this hill of our vision, our vision of our church. You, many of you know it is to be a family, not a franchise. Uh, the church is not a place uh, where religious goods and services are exchanged from professionals to consumers. That's not what we do here. The church is a place where God's kids get together and we say, good guess, our Father. This is what the church is. Every parent strongly desires for their kids to get along. I don't know of a parent who takes delight in their kids fighting. And, you know, some of you don't have kids. Many of you, all of you are kids. You have parents, <laughs> right? And I'll think of when you were a kid, whenever you and your brother or sister would fight, get along, and how it would aggravate or frustrate your parents. Uh, when when um, Hayden, had, Hayden and Grayson are 18 months apart, and so Hayden was nine months when... Grayson came onto the scene, and we were really, um, like, we were really scared on how he would receive baby Grayson. Let me see the little monkey. Good throw. And, and this was Hayden's favorite toy, um, little monkey. I don't even know how he got it, but he loves this thing. Um, this is the backup. We, the real one's, like, falling apart, but we did some, we, like, we bought two just in case he lost the, the real one. <laughs> we would not have a meltdown. And so he loves, if you know Hayden, he loves monkeys. And so Shari had this great idea. Um, big monkey. It's like Tony Romo. <laughs> Sorry. I love the guy. I'm watching the game today. Um, and so Shari had this idea. It's like, hey, when, when, Grace, when Hayden comes to the hospital with me, Grayson, what if Grayson bought Hayden a giant monkey? And so she got, the, and look at his face. Go back to the other one. Go back. Go back. There we go. 
So, so I remember when, when Chris showed up to the hospital with Hayden, like he, we got him out of the car, and he was like, he knew something was up. He was like, what's going on? This is a weird parking garage. And we brought him in, and he's like this happy-go-lucky kid. He knew something was up. He walks in, and we, we staged it to where the first thing he would see is this. And we told him, hey, Grayson got you a gift. He's like, who's Grayson? Like, don't worry. You'll figure it out. But got you the gift. And so he, he loves, he loved this monkey. Here, you can have him back, Jason. That was not a Tony Romo throw. Dak Prescott, where it's at. So, um, so, so this is so great. So he comes in, and Shari's in the bed, and both grandparents are there. Both sets, like my parents and Shari's parents are there. And then we bring Hayden, and he sees baby Grayson. And um, show this next picture. And so, I mean, Grayson, <laughs> look at Grayson's eyes. Grayson's probably, um, you know, eight hours old at this point. It's in the afternoon. And so Hayden walks up. And, like, we're scared because we used to have a little miniature wiener dog. And Hayden would run around and, like, kick her because she looked like a football. And um, <laughs> she's not with us anymore. But so we were, like, really, we were really, we were really, um, we were concerned that he's going to, like, be bad to Grayson. And so we did everything we can. And he goes in. And we're like, oh, and so he sees Grayson. We put him on the, on, the, on the bed, and he, like, leans in, and he kisses baby Grayson on his forehead. And the room just melted, and all the grandparents are crying. And nobody had their phone out. And so I said, hey, let's do this again. I got my phone out because uh, we got to catch this moment of when brothers meet for the first time. And so I got, we all got our phones, and, and Hayden leans into Grayson, and an open hand slaps him in the face. <laughs> True story. <laughs> and uh, it was like he was saying, welcome to the family, know your place, I'm the oldest, right? <laughs> so we as, as parents, we're just like, oh, you know, there's nothing that b- brings more joy to my heart when the brothers are playing and they're doing great together. And there's, there's few things that break my heart when I see them fighting and kicking and calling each other like names, like poo-poo butt. I don't know where they get these names. Like I've, they've never heard me say this word. Does Shari call me that behind my back? I don't know where they learned this name. I don't think she does. This daycare for you. But the point is, parents deeply care about whether their kids get along. And our father, listen, deeply cares whether his sons and daughters can get along. The last part of verse 1 here says dwell. The psalm does not say how good and pleasant it is when brothers dip their toes in the water of unity or they flirt with the idea of you or they visit. No, they dwell, they hang out, they stay. They remain. To dwell is to take your hat and your shoes off in your coat and be. And this is what the Psalms say. Lions dwell in unity. Bengal tigers do not. Verse 2 and 3. Here's what it's like. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard. Oil on the beard. Biblical evidence of beard oil for you hipsters. On the beard of Aaron. The priest, some of you will get it on the way home, running down on the collar of his robes. This is a cool image. This is an image of a priest, Aaron, being anointed. And there's so much, like, I I didn't bring it with me, but I have a little bottle of anointing. Sometimes when we pray for people, we will anoint their head, and we just put just a little bit on, you make a cross. The image here is there's so much oil, which is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, on the head, that it's running down the head, on the beard. The beard can't catch it enough, and it's like this 
dripping sponge, and then the, the oil is falling down on, on the collar of not his like raw denim jacket, but of his robes, his priestly robes. I was going to bring my robe that I have. I, I figured it would freak you out, so I left it down. Um, but it's this image of the oil, the anointing, the blessing of the Holy Spirit being so abundant that it is flowing down on, off the collar on the robe. And what you should know is that the priest would have a necklace around that would like rest on his chest, and it would have 12 stones symbolizing the 12, stone, 12 tribes of Israel. And so what's kind of hinted to, which the Jews would know, is that this oil is bathing the 12 stones, which is symbolic of God's oil, his presence bathing and blessing all of the tribes of Israel. This is God's heart, right? That's what this song, like I know, you know, most of us don't see that imagery. That's what the, the imagery would be to the ancient Jew. And it is like the dew of Mount Hermon, which falls on the mountain. Here's a picture of Mount Hermon. And what was very uh, interesting about the dew of Hermon was that it was especially thick and abundant. And, and things around the area are thick and lush because it gets this constant heavy dose of dew. Dew uh, in the Bibles is usually sim- a symbol of God's word, where oil is the symbol of the Holy Spirit. So you get this picture of when God's kids dwell in unity, it is good like the dew, and it is pleasant like the fragrant oil. That's kind of the imagery there. What's all, what I love about this, this is cool, I didn't know this until this week, which is beautiful, is this is the songs of going up. Right, we talked about this for at length. I'm tired of talking about it. These are the songs of ascent, the psalms of ascending, the psalms of going up. But what's great is three times it says the blessing of God comes down. You put it put on here. It comes down on running down on the beard, running down on the collar, the dew which falls. Okay, so here's the thing. Is the blessing of God is not something we work up. It's not something we manufacture. The blessing of God. In the midst of the songs of going up, the blessing of God comes down. This is what God sends. It's awesome. We all, I've never met anyone who's like, I got enough blessing. I got enough joy. I got enough peace. I don't need any more love. I'm good. I don't need any more richness. I'm straight, right? No, everybody longs for the blessing of God. And, and I just love that, that um, contrast in the songs of going up, that it's the blessing of God that comes down. And then the last line of verse three, for there to a specific place, to a specific people, God has commanded the blessing. I love this. Like the blessing doesn't have a choice. God commands the blessing to be where brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. Where the church gets Psalms 133 right, it is unmatched. It is awesome. And it's something that we've always aimed for here. Where the church gets Psalms 133 wrong, it's pretty tragic. I know many of you have been in churches and been in places and been in families been in work environments, been in communities where there's so much division. And we talk about family, but for some of you, the reality is family is, um, is hard because brothers and sisters and 
aunts and uncles and cousins and mom and dad don't dwell in unity. And there's deep division. And holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas can be difficult because 133 is not a reality because God's blessing obviously isn't there. Otherwise, you wouldn't make up an excuse to not go home for Thanksgiving. I'm not saying it's just like that's what happens is when blessing isn't there in our homes or in our neighborhoods or in our churches, we find reasons not to go because it's not good for our soul. It's not good for our emotional being. It's toxic. Nothing wrong with like, yeah, avoid toxic situations, please. As a church, this is so important. I want, I know, I know all of y'all are reading along. I want to ask you if this is a place you call home, Please, I want to ask you to do me a pastoral favor. Memorize Psalms 133. It's three verses. Some of you can quote Rihanna. I think you can do three verses. If you don't know Rihanna, don't Google. Three verses. I, th- I, th- I think you can memorize Psalms 133. This is a, a cool little, I don't, it's not, it, oh, please don't read this as judgment, but there's sometimes I've noticed over my life growing up in church, um, Generally, people over 50, I could walk up to and I could say how good and pleasant it is, and they will finish the sentence. And so many times I walk to people my age, and I'll say how good and pleasant it is, and they're like, what are you talking about? They haven't learned it yet. And there is a reason why the great, wise, aged saints among us and in the churches that we've grown up in, there's a reason why they know this. There's a reason why... Most of the quote saints you look at, you know, I probably could, could say how good and pleasant it is, and they would know it's 133. My, my goal as a pastor is that you would know that this is 133 and that you would know those three verses. Because if there ever is one of the rudders of health, it is understanding that our Father deeply cares about unity. We live in such a divided world, divided country. I mean, there's, I mean, pick. Pick an issue and it will divide and is becoming ever more increasingly more divisive. The church, if our, if our message is love, acceptance, and forgiveness, it is a tragedy when churches can't figure 133 out. It's a tragedy. If our message is grace and love and acceptance, we should have churches full of liberals and conservatives because we're related not by the blood of the donkey or the elephant, were related by the blood of the Lamb of God that was shed for the sins of all the world, including the sins of the parties. The church should be a place, should be a place where we get this right. That's our goal. Now, let's look to um, Ephesians 4 briefly. You, don't have to, you could turn there if you want. You don't have to. We'll have it on the screen for you. Um, I love the book of Ephesians. It is uh, six chapters, and it is... Pa- the, the most extensive writing the Apostle Paul gave us on how to be the church. The theme of Ephesians is twofold, who you are in Christ and how to live in the world. The first three chapters are what God has done so that you can be in Christ. The last three chapters are practical advice for how to live in the world, how to live at your job, how to live in your home, how to live in the church. Ephesians is what it's about. I want to call your attention to the first six verses of Ephesians 4. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. 
We have all been called sons and daughters of the king. We are no longer, if you've been saved, you are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer an enemy of God. You are no longer a stranger to the, to the, the, the kingdom of God. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. You have a calling in which you should walk in. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And here's how. With all humility and with gentleness, with patience, I don't love this next one, bearing with one another in love, just like patiently suffering people in their mess. Not my strong suit, but it's what, we should, it's what we're called to. Eager, I love this, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of Christ. This is all of our responsibility, that we would have humility and gentleness and patience, that we would bear with one another in love, even when they're different from us, and that there should be this tiptoe eagerness for all sons and daughters in Christ to maintain the unity of the Spirit. There is one body, in one spirit, just as you were called the one hope that belongs to your call, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. If you study this chapter, you just get this like, okay, there's one God, there's one body of Christ, stop dividing it up. It's kind of what Paul is talking about. It is, if you go back to, look, focus on the, the bolded part here, eager to maintain the unity of, I wish I could draw like a big red sharpie around the word of. It's the unity of the Holy Spirit. That means it belongs to the Holy Spirit. It's his unity, right? The Bible doesn't say, hey, um, create unity in your churches. The Bible just says, don't jack with it. It's the Holy Spirit's job to create unity. It's our job to maintain it and not mess with it. The Holy Spirit owns the unity. The Holy Spirit authors the unity. It's something God does. Remember, the blessing comes down on the beard of Aaron. Warren Worsby says, maintaining the spiritual unity of God's people. Can't do that, Jake. Maintaining the unity, maintaining the spiritual unity of God's people is the work of every believer. I love this. It's not just the work, it's just not my work or Tiff's work or Jake's work or the archer's work or, or whoever, Cindy's work. This is the work of all of us. All of us. If you're a, a believer in Christ, if you're a member of the church, this is your job, your responsibility to maintain. Um, Joni uh, Tata says, I love this one. She says, believers are never told to become one. We are already one in Christ and are expected to act like. Oh, come on. That's so good. You know, I can make a t-shirt like that. All right. Now, if you keep reading in, um, uh, towards the end of Ephesians, this is great. It's good stuff. I've I learned this stuff the hard way. So I'm, I'm going to offer you some really bloody, scarred lessons that I want to encourage you not to repeat. Towards the end of Ephesians 4, Paul says, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. 
he doubles down. He opens this saying, hey, speak the truth. He doubles down. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's a great question. Um, with what I say, does it give grace to people? Here's a strong warning, my friends. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You know, the, the people that are, like there's some people, I'm going to say this and I hope you don't get offended. There's some people that if you offend or if you grieve, you're like, nah, oh well, like I don't really know them or like they're a stranger or they, there's some random person on the internet that did not like this blog and they're commenting, I don't really know them and whatever, right? Like there's people that if you offend or grieve, it's like no big deal. Then there's people that are close to you, that mean the most to you, that you love and that unselfishly love you. And you would never want to offend or grieve those people. Like I offend my kids all the time. I don't want to offend my wife. I don't want to, right? Did you know? Some people don't know this. You can offend the Holy Spirit someone who's very dear to you, who loves you and comforts you and leads you and counsels you and gives you energy and boldness and anoints you for, for service to God and his people. Did you know there is a way in which you could live your life that will be offensive and grieve the Holy Spirit of God? I think any of us would ever want that. There's a way in which our words, our anger, our taking instead of giving, which is what that thief stuff is about, our stinginess, and our words, again, be corrupting talk. There's a way in which we can live our lives just doing those things right there that would offend and grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, there's this last line that I kind of want to um, hone in on as we close. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Uh, and I think that last sentence, while we're not perfect, I see so much of that last sentence of, of Ephesians 4, being kind. Like, you guys are kind to one another, as far as I know. <laughs> tender, some of you are tender-hearted. So many of you forgive quickly because you know God in Christ has forgiven you. And I just want to celebrate that. Like I see so much. I've never been in a church where that is more evident. So well done. I'll give you the golf clap. Good job. This is super convicting to me. There's this genealogy. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. This is, learn this lesson the hard way. Here's what happens. When we get hurt, Here's what happens. A seed of bitterness is planted in your life when you get hurt. When someone lets you down, when someone offends you, when someone grieves you, when someone doesn't meet your expectations, when you get frustrated with somebody, here's what happens is there's a little bit of like, uh, we call that just a seed of bitterness, like a little mustard should have brought a seed. And what happens is that comes into our life, we swallow it, and it comes down to our gut. And if not dealt with, and that's, hey, that happens, okay? Like there's many times I find seeds of bitterness in my life. Like, where'd you come from? I want to be bitter towards that person, and I got to do some excavating. 
But here's what happens. When a seed of bitterness gets put in your life, it has a genealogy. It grows wrath. Bitterness begets wrath. Wrath is kind of this primordial a primordial thing. It's like, so you got bitterness in your gut and it kind of rises up to wrath, just this like raw feeling. And then that begins to take shape into anger and your heart starts to beat and you get worked up really quickly. And so now what was a seed of bitterness is now like a fast heart rate and high blood pressure, right? You see how this is giving birth. And then that anger travels to your head and then your mind is full of clamor, just this constant chatter running around. You start having these, I know none of you have this, but you have these Im- imaginary conversations with the person that you're ticked off with. And you're like, well, if they say this, I'll say this. And, but, but you're in this conversation, dude, which is like no one else is involved in. And like you're making up all these scenarios. It's crazy. I know none of you deal with that. That's, that's my problem. Um, but bitterness has now grown into clamor in your mind. And your mind is just reverberating with all this nonsense that beneath it has anger, that beneath it has um, wrath, beneath that is bitterness, okay? Well, that clamor wants to get out. And the spot to get out of your head is your mouth. And suddenly, what was clamor now turns into slander. And you open your mouth and you start talking bad. What slander is, slander is expressing the desire for somebody's ill will what slander is. Slander to curse somebody, to slander somebody, is for you to use your words to express ill will towards a person. And it all comes from a place of bitterness. What malice is, malice is the next step. Malice is not verbally expressing ill will. Malice is actually carrying out the actions of ill will. That's what malice is. And it all starts with bitterness. It all starts often with an offense or with a grievance. And if not tended to, it grows into these, th- these things, okay? This happens to many people. It's happened to me many times. And you find yourself full of anger, full of clamor in your mind, your mouth. Every time you talk about this person or this situation, like it's just all negative. And eventually you start looking, if you don't check it, you start looking for ways to actually carry out the ill will. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That is not how God's kids should operate. Put all that far from you. That's falsehood. It's not godliness. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another in Christ. The gospel is that Jesus walked in a manner that we could not walk in. He he lived a life we couldn't live. He lived his life full of humility and gentleness in ways that we could not have done. He was patient with everyone around him. He patiently and lovingly bared with everyone around him. And on the cross, he took the bitterness, the wrath, the anger, the clamor, the slander, and the malice that our rebellion deserved. He took it off for us so that we might experience the kindness and the tenderness of God, our Father. That's the good news. And really, the only hope for ever walking in a manner worthy of the calling we've received, the only hope we have in being a, a people that dwells together is first understanding what Christ has really forgiven us of. When we fail, 
to forgive other people. We have forgotten just how great God has forgiven us. If you see yourself or you see situations where there's just no forgiveness, the pastoral hint is you could, you could dig in there and you could find people who have forgotten just how great their sin was. And they've, been, they've become comfortable with the vertical forgiveness, so much so that they refuse to offer the horizontal forgiveness. Not so with us, my friends. That's not how God's called his sons and daughters to live. As we come to the table, I want you to ask yourself the question, does our fellowship dwell in this type of unity that Psalms 133 speaks of? And if not, is there anything you're doing to disrupt it? Is there anything I'm doing to disrupt it? The Holy Spirit desires love, blessing, and unity, but often we get in the way. And the second thing I want you to ask yourself is, is there any seeds of bitterness in your life that need to be dealt with? I remember in a season of my life where this was so obvious to everyone else but me, and people kept saying, Drew, you need to deal with this. Drew, you need to deal with this bitterness. Drew, you need to deal with this. And I kept saying, no, 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 I'm not bitter, I'm not bitter. And it was because I felt like if I, if I admitted that I was bitter towards this person, it would be me admitting spiritual immaturity. Listen, there's sometimes there's situations that happen to you that you just have no choice, but you were hurt. And you didn't have a choice in the matter. Grace abounds. But ignoring it and making it better. And then there's some cases where you just, you're easily offended and need to grow up. <laughs> you know, that's none of you. So I know this is Thanksgiving is this week and we're going to be traveling and no doubt we're going to be around people. And there are going to be situations where it will be very difficult to dwell in unity. But I want to encourage you that if you are a believer in Christ Jesus and if you've been given the power of the Holy Spirit, as far as it depends on you, like, you can't answer for mom and dad. You can't answer for brother or sister or that weird family member. Like everyone has that weird family member, that awkward. Like, if you didn't think of a weird family member, you're the weird family member. <laughs> but everyone has that. Listen, you can't be responsible for them, but you can re be responsible for your attitude. You can be responsible for your words. As far as it depends on you, may your holiday break be good and pleasant, and marked with the blessing of God. Let us pray. Our Father, how we need you. And we, uh, we just reject and renounce the ways of the flesh, the ways of our selfishness, the ways in which we are easily or routinely or deeply offended and grieved and wounded. We know that there's no effort that we could put in that could do away with those things or that could bring the graces of love and acceptance and humility and gentleness and bearing with one another or those can only happen because you are living deeply in our lives. So 
so we invite you to come to those places in our hearts, in our minds, in our speech, in the manner in which we walk. Father, would you create us to be people, brothers and sisters, who dwell in unity. For in that place, to those people, you've commanded the blessing, life evermore. Amen.